from Public Radio International, this is The World. A co-production of the BBC World Service, PRI, and WGBH Boston. It's Friday, August 31st. I'm Marco Werman. In South Africa, murder charges are filed against the striking miners who were fired on by police. And in Gambia, a government that rules through fear. The whole country is in fear. Anybody who opens his mouth or her mouth and say anything against me, overnight they will come and take you or take your wife. Plus the great 2012 Quebec maple syrup heist. When we were doing just a routine inventory check for the end of our fiscal year, and we uh, realized that some maple syrup was missing. PRI's The World is made possible in part by Medtronic employees, proudly supporting the work of United Way. United Way helps build pathways out of poverty by mobilizing the caring power of communities around the world, focusing on education, health, and basic needs. Learn how to help at unitedway.org. And by PBS Learning Media, providing accessible, on-demand educational content to teachers nationwide. More information online at pbslearningmedia.org. I'm Marco Werman. This is The World. In South Africa, murder charges have just been filed in the case of 34 people shot dead by police earlier this month during a strike at a platinum mine. But in an unexpected twist in the case, the people accused of murder are not the police who fired their weapons, but 270 of the miners involved in the unrest. Prosecutors are using a law that dates back to the apartheid era, saying that the miners provoked the police. The public reaction to the charges has led the South African Justice Minister to demand an explanation. The world's Anders Kelto is in Cape Town. What has been the reaction, Anders? People are really angry, Marco. There's a huge sense of disbelief, and some people even find the situation laughable. Probably the most vocal critic of President Jacob Zuma through all of this and of the police has been Julius Malema, the former president of the ANC Youth League, who had this to say. The police who actually killed those people... None of them is inside. Not even a single policeman is arrested, which is a madness. Now, tell us what the law is that's being used to charge the miners uh, in such a controversial way. It goes back to the apartheid era? It's based on something known as the common purpose doctrine. It's pretty famous or infamous here in South Africa. It's basically a doctrine used to persecute people who oppose apartheid. So anti-apartheid activists who weren't even directly involved in certain crimes could still be prosecuted for those crimes just by virtue of their being part of a group. But there's a very tragic irony to this, of course, which is that the party of Nelson Mandela, which freed South Africa from apartheid, is now using this same apartheid-era law to accuse poor black miners of murder. And that is what has people so upset. How is this expected to unfold in the coming weeks? Because the National Prosecuting Authority brought these charges, the 270 minors who were arrested are being held in jail until next week when they will have their bail hearing. So those minors will be in custody for at least one more week. Meanwhile, the president of South Africa, Jacob Zuma, has appointed an independent commission to investigate the shooting, and they are expected to deliver a report within about five months. So it's probably going to be some time before we know what actually happened. 
And how is mining production across South Africa affected by all the labor unrest right now? What's important to note is that this is not an isolated incident. There have been other mines that have been shut down, and platinum production has slowed. This mine, the Lonmin mine in Maracana, has been shut down for nearly three weeks now, and unions and the mine owners are going to reopen talks next week to see if they can come to common ground and get production up and running again. But there is a lot of unrest in mines all across the country still. What do miners generally make? I mean, like the men who were working uh, in the platinum mine Americana, like what kind of salary do they get? Most of them make roughly $5,000 a year, slightly above the average income for South Africans. They're low-paying jobs and they're, they're unglorious jobs. A lot of these miners live in these shanty towns a few hundred yards from the entrances to the mines. It's hard to carve out a living. They've been asking for two to three times the salary that they're currently making which obviously would be a huge increase. But even at that increase, they certainly wouldn't be living large. Yeah, not a glorious life at all. The world's Anders Kelto in Cape Town. Thank you very much. Thank you, Marco. There's been controversial justice in Gambia, in West Africa as well. The government there has executed nine prisoners by firing squad, and the president, Yaya Jame, has vowed to execute all 47 death row inmates by mid-September. No one is entirely sure why the prisoners were killed. It's been 27 years since Gambia last carried out an execution. Many of those slated for execution are former members of Gambia's military and have been detained since the 1990s, charged with treason. President Jame took power in a coup in 1994. Al-Haji So is related to one of the nine prisoners that were executed last Sunday. His name was Aliou Ba. Now, Al-Haji, uh, Aliou wasn't your brother, but you grew up together like brothers. How did you hear about his death? Through the Internet and through rumors. Now, you, you live currently in Vancouver in Canada, and I gather you just recently, in the past few minutes, spoke with your family back home in Gambia. What did they tell you? Any new developments? Well, actually, they did not even know anything about it. It was uh, I myself who informed them about it. And they were shocked and they were all crying because nobody knows exactly what's happening in that country. They had no access to him. And uh, initially, it was not confirmed because it was all rumors. Until it was voiced out in the Radio Gambia locally, then we all knew that uh, he actually killed them. And so are new details emerging about these death row inmates in Gambia in, in recent days? Well, it is. Now it's, it's, it's global. It's all over the place. It's everywhere. Everybody knows about it. And, uh, and the situation in the country is, it, is very scary. People are scared. It's just a very sad situation there now. But those of us who are outside, you know, we are talking and, and, and we're just doing all we can for the international community to know about it. Well, tell me more about the, this relative of yours, Ali Uba. How long had he been in prison and what had he been charged with? Well, he, he joined the military in 1987, right after we finished high school. You know, he was just a very brave young man who, who had no fear in him. You know, he, he meant well. He was a kind soul. There was a lot of corruption in the country. And him and this Yaya, they were all friends in the military. Right. And so they decided to remove the, the regime at the time in 1994. Uh, with the intention to bring in about freedom and democracy and, and, you know, eradicate all corruption in the country. That was their intent. But Yaya disappointed them. And in 1995, him and some other guys wanted to remove Yaya himself because he became a tyrant and he just started killing people. 
Even in the military itself, he just started killing people. So they wanted to remove him, and it was not successful. And, and so he tried unsuccessfully to stage a coup, and this time was arrested, and he's been in jail ever since? Yes, he was captured, and he was in jail ever since. And they were tortured. I went back in 2006, and uh, I was able to see him only for 10 minutes. Yeah, you said your family had, had very poor access to see Aliyu in prison. Exactly, exactly. I, I, for myself, last year when I went there, I went all the way to the mile to, to the prison where he was, but I was not allowed to see him. What can you tell us about President Yahya Jammeh, this man who has been in power since 1994 and that your brother tried to stage a coup against twice? Like they said, power corrupts, absolute power, absolutely corrupts. His behavior is, is just erratic. The whole country is in fear. Anybody who opens his mouth or her mouth and say anything against me, overnight they will come and take you or take your wife. The whole system there is just sad. I just cannot believe in this day and age, you know, anything like that is happening. People are even relating him to, 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 to Idi Amin. Right. Well, I was looking around. I mean, it does seem, you know, according to Reporters Without Borders, there's absolute intolerance to any form of criticism in Gambia. And- yeah, you can. Even if you have, if the whole country is under hostage. Even you, even you pick up a phone and call your friend or your family, they're even scared of speaking. What can the international community do about uh, President well, Yahya Jammeh? That's what we're trying because people are rallying, you know, in Seattle, Washington, D.C., all the way to Europe. You know, people are voicing out now that enough is enough. So hopefully... You know, they will deny him from traveling, deny his ministers from traveling, just shut them down. Al-Haji So is from Gambia. He now lives in Vancouver, British Columbia. One of his relatives was executed by the government of President Yahya Jammeh last Sunday in Gambia. Al-Haji, thank you for speaking with us and our condolences to you. Thank you very much. You're very welcome. And now a story that involves the theft of one of Canada's most precious resources. No, it's not gold. Call it amber liquid gold, maple syrup, that is. As much as $30 million worth of maple syrup has gone missing from a warehouse in Quebec. Here's Sergeant Claude Denis from the Quebec Provincial Police describing the situation. Crime scene technicians are still there. Uh, They are still on the scene to collect evidences. This is a warehouse. It's a very big warehouse, so we have to check all the scene, and uh, that's why police officers are still there right now, because the investigation is not finished. As Sergeant Denis said, the investigation is not finished, but the syrup is definitely missing. The Federation of Quebec Maple Syrup Producers rents the warehouse of maple syrup, and marie granger Godbout is their executive director. She says that it's unclear when the syrup was stolen. We discovered this uh, when we were doing just a routine inventory check for the end of our fiscal year, and we uh, realized that some maple syrup was missing. And there's something important here to specify. There is still maple syrup in the warehouse. It used to have, or is supposed to have, supposed to be more than 10 million pounds, which is more than $30 million of value. But we don't know what's left and what's gone. Have you ever experienced anything or seen anything like this before with maple syrup? Uh, no, but the maple syrup producers themselves, they they know there is a lot of, um, you know, in the sugar shack, every year there are some barrels that are stolen. And they, unfortunately, this is a, a reality in, the, in, in, well, in the sector, but it's important for the producers to, to know or to keep in mind that this maple syrup was fully insured. Does this heist represent a substantial percentage of, of an annual production in Quebec of maple syrup? Well, the whole content of this warehouse, 10 million pounds, it's 
fairly a small amount comparing to the whole crop. In 2012, the whole crop is in Quebec is estimated to be around 96 million pounds. It's significant, but there is still maple syrup in the other warehouses. So this doesn't kind of foretell any possible shortage of maple syrup, but it is a, a, a valuable commodity, isn't it? It is a high-value product, of course. And unfortunately, like with any other high-value product, there is imitations and there is uh, like black market. Unfortunately, we have to deal and to, well, fight with this. I got to say, this starts to feel like a, a bad joke about Canada, and I'm waiting for the punchline, like there's going to be a huge stack of pancakes discovered somewhere. But I, I imagine Canadians are, especially uh, Quebecers, are taking this all pretty seriously. Yes, of course. Well, there is approximately, let's say, 7,500 producers here in Quebec uh, producing maple syrup. It's a very uh, important uh, production in the economy here, in the agriculture here. Let's say approximately one farmer out of four is in the maple syrup industry in one way. So it's significant for, for the, the agriculture here in Quebec. What kind of security did you have at the warehouse? I mean, is security something you think about uh, around your syrup? This warehouse was a temporary location for our stocks. We uh, we just bought a new warehouse in March, and we were about to move this maple syrup to our new warehouse. So uh, we were not owners of this warehouse. Yeah, of course, it was secured. It was locked, and there was a guardian making uh, its visit regularly. Um, so they they were like safety measures. Well, good luck finding uh, the, this enormous quantity of maple syrup. Anne-Marie Granger-Godbout, the executive director for the Federation of Quebec Maple Syrup Producers. Thank you for speaking with us. Thank you. This is PRI, Public Radio International. The World is brought to you by PRI with help from the Medtronic Foundation, supporting the work of Partners in Health, an organization dedicated to bringing quality health care to the world's poorest people and communities. Learn how to help at PIH.org. I'm Marco Werman. This is The World. Tensions are flaring along Jordan's border with Syria. Jordanian officials are fed up with the influx of Syrian refugees, more than 180,000 at this point. Refugees are bristling at the conditions they face in makeshift United Nations camps. About 200 went on a rampage at the Zatari camp, protesting poor services and conditions. Dale Gavlak visited the camp and sent this report. A group of Syrians line up to collect brushes to clean out their UN-issued tents. Besides the constant dust-laden wind that coats everything with a fine orange dust, refugees in this desert camp battle heat, snakes, and scorpions. 35-year-old Abu Mohammed calls the camp conditions unbearable, and he's not surprised by this week's rioting. There was a similar incident in the camp last Saturday when 200 refugees threw stones at Jordanian security guards, wounding several. I have two kids and a wife. We're only allowed to go to bath and have a shower like once every three or four days. And two days ago, because some people get foods and some don't, they make that riot and I guess it's right. I wish that they brought us back to Syria rather than be here. They have to treat us in a more human Others, though, are somewhat more understanding of what the Jordanian government is going through. 
Abu Abdullah, who used to work in a restaurant in Syria, says some of the rioting over the lack of food and water is probably a result of the influx this week of nearly 5,000 new refugees in just 24 hours. In this problem, we can't blame anyone because when someone is oppressed, they complain, and the people who complained uh, for their basic uh, rights. We were in Syria, we were killed, our children were killed. We, we prefer to go back to Syria and die there in dignity uh, rather than die here in humiliation. Still, many find it galling that after escaping bombs dropped on them by President Bashar al-Assad's regime, they're now battling tear gas in the camp. But Jordan says it is fed up with the rioting and won't put up with demonstrations, no matter what, in this camp of more than 24,000 refugees. Police say 28 officers were wounded in the riot, one seriously with a fractured skull. A security official says the rioters will be sent back to Syria, but away from the regime's control but it's unclear how the Jordanian authorities could prevent that. Still, aid workers at the camp, like Saba Mubasalat of Save the Children, have expressed concern that the huge influx of Syrians is leaving the camp authorities unable to meet the refugees' basic needs. This is really just overwhelming. The number of tents that are being erected to accommodate those arrivals is not sufficient. And, uh, you know, for other organizations providing food services or water supplies, that increase in the sudden increase in demand is becoming a little bit problematic. Jordan and the UN Refugee Agency continue to appeal for more aid, as they've been doing for months. A UN representative has said the situation will likely get worse unless the agency can come up with some $429 million just to provide basic needs for the refugees. For the world, I'm Dale Gavlek at the Zatari camp in northern Jordan. Where are the rebel-held areas in Syria and what regions support the Assad regime? We have a map from our partners at the BBC that visually explains the uprising. That's at theworld.org. The Syrian conflict is still very much on the agenda at the United Nations. This week, diplomats there debated a Turkish proposal to set up a safe zone for displaced people inside Syria, but no action was taken. There are political reasons for that. Russia and China have repeatedly used their veto power at the U.N. Security Council when it comes to Syria-related resolutions. But there could be another factor at work, summer vacations. Colm Lynch is a United Nations correspondent for the Washington Post. He says this time of year, U.N. headquarters are pretty sleepy. August is when all of the ambassadors, particularly the Europeans, they, they head off to their month-long vacations in Europe. They head out to the Hamptons, sort of all directions, east, west, north, and south. And generally, you know, you see a whole sort of class of diplomats you've never seen before, the deputies and and their assistants kind of running everything in the Security Council. So there was a big meeting. The French foreign minister was in New York yesterday with some other foreign ministers from Turkey and Britain. But some of the big powers, Hillary Clinton, Sergei Lavrov from Russia, the Chinese foreign minister, didn't show the Indians had fairly low-ranking representation. So I gather the vacation days are still sort of going on for some. I mean, this year, the French generally sort of safeguard their summer vacations more than perhaps any other delegation, but they had the presidency of the Security Council, which meant that their ambassador, Gerard 
Aro was forced to spend his August in New York. You know, there's a little bit of embarrassment these days, a huge crisis in Syria. The, yeah, I was going to say, what does yeah. all this mean for Syria? Because, I mean, that that's a, a chronic situation. It's a chronic situation. I mean, essentially, the real action and the UN as the center of gravity sort of came to a crashing halt at the end of July. There was uh, the Chinese and the Russians vetoed a Security Council, which would have sort of laid out a kind of blueprint for UN mediation there. The former Secretary General Kofi Annan announced he was resigning his position. So whether it was August or not, not much was going to happen on Syria. So they focused on things that there's some agreement talked about, you know, what the council could do to respond to the humanitarian crisis, but really no expectation that this meeting would produce a, a breakthrough. The Security Council wasn't even able to agree on a modest statement. And I think that's probably had more to do with why people like Hillary Clinton and the Russians and the Chinese weren't there, is they don't want to go to a meeting if there's not going to be any product, if they can't agree on anything. It just looks bad. And given what's happening in Syria, are there any Syrian diplomats left in New York right now? There are. There is the ambassador, Bashar al-Jafari, and he is not going anywhere. I mean, he hasn't been traveling. He's been very focused on this. He was at the meeting yesterday. It was a colorful um, exchange between him and much of the rest of the membership. He was in a, in a very combative mood, insulting the Moroccan foreign minister, making fun of the Moroccan monarchy, uh, accusing the Germans of favoring the, the Christians in Syria, going after other Europeans. So he's, he's around and he's not going on vacation this month. So, Colm, uh, dish for us a second. Where, where do U.N. diplomats go on vacation? Do they return to their resorts in their home countries, or do they just drive down the Long Island Expressway to the Hamptons? A bit of both. Susan Rice, the U.S. ambassador, she has a habit of going on more adventurous tours rather than trips out to the Hamptons. And so she was in India with her whole family. Uh, she did a couple of days of high-level diplomacy and then trips to the Taj Mahal and tweeted a lot of it. So it was fairly transparent and public mm-hmm. what she was doing. The Pakistani ambassador was absent throughout the month. However, there is a lot of mystery surrounding his departure, and it may be that he's having some sort of internal fight with the government and may have even been pushed aside. The Indians, we had a high-level meeting, as I mentioned, on Syria yesterday. The Indian ambassador was nowhere to be seen. His deputy was gone, and they had a, a sort of the number three sitting in the Indian chair. So they're all over. I mean, the American ambassador's both Republican and Democrat tend to prefer, you know, short trips out to the Hamptons. John Negroponte, Richard Holbrook, Zalmay Khalilzad, they used to all sort of rent places out, out in the Hamptons and go there. So if there was a big crisis, you know, they weren't that far off and they right. could come in and then they could head out once the weekend came about. Colm Lynch writes the blog Turtle Bay for Foreign Policy Magazine. We'll have a link at theworld.org. Colm, always good to speak with you. Thanks. All right. Thanks for having me. Take care. Hi, Marco Werman. Coming up, Ecuador granted asylum to WikiLeaks founder Julian Assange. Now an Ecuadorian journalist has been granted asylum by the U.S. We'll hear from the journalist's attorney. You know, I see President Correa's actions as very contradictory, considering um, how he treats journalists in his own country. PRI's The World is made possible in part by Medtronic employees proudly supporting the work of United Way. United Way helps build pathways out of poverty by mobilizing the caring power of communities around the world, focusing on education, health, and basic needs. Learn how to help at unitedway.org. 
I'm Marco Werman, and this is The World, a co-production of the BBC World Service, PRI, and WGBH Boston. Culture plays a key role in shaping America's image around the world. Soft power, they call it. It's the goodwill generated when, say, a popular American rock star performs around the world. Good thing we've got plenty of them. Other countries try to do the same, but it ain't easy, especially for countries with an uncommon language and some unique financial and political obstacles. I'm talking specifically about Israel here. The world's Matthew Bell has our report from Jerusalem. Hadag Nahash, an eight-piece funk and hip-hop group, is on stage for soundcheck. The band is one of Israel's biggest success stories. They've toured the globe, sold tracks to Hollywood, and shared stages with top performers. Tonight, though, they're playing their hometown of Jerusalem as part of Israel's first international music conference. Singer Shannon Street says he and his bandmates are among the chosen few. They're Israeli artists who make a good living from Israel's small, saturated music market. With help from Jewish organizations overseas, they've also had success abroad. We never like took the foot off the gas. We always kept going. Even tough times, we kept going. And we were lucky, but a lot of people that started out with us aren't, aren't as fortunate as we are, and they're not doing something else, you know? So if somebody can manage to get a few songs into a radio station overseas, or if somebody can manage to go on some festival circuit in Europe or in the States, definitely I'd recommend it. And that's what the Jerusalem Music Conference aims to do, help aspiring Israeli bands break into the global market. The event is consciously modeled on the South by Southwest Festival in Austin, Texas. The participants are a mix of technology, business, and music people, Venture capitalist and conference funder Erel Margalit says it's about creating international buzz for Israeli artists. Just like we're doing in the Israeli film industry, just like we're doing in the high-tech industry, Israel became the startup nation. It became the startup nation by taking innovation from a small place, far from the market, and letting the world know about this. Now it's from the startup nation to the creative nation. Conference organizer Jeremy Hulsh moved to Israel from the U.S. 10 years ago. He runs a nonprofit called Olay Records that bills itself as Israel's music export office. This is a country overflowing with musical talent, he says, but here's the problem. Quite simply, Israeli musicians have absolutely no knowledge and very little access to the uh, tools or networks that uh, can help develop them uh, professionally. Take Israel's physical isolation, Hulsh says. In the U.S. or Europe, bands can rent a van, scrape together some beer money, sleep on friends' couches, and hit the road for weeks on end, trying to kickstart their careers. That's not an option here. Let's just put it this way. Doing a national tour in Israel is going to Tel Aviv, then going to Jerusalem, and then going home. That's a a one-hour drive. Yeah, it's a one-hour. It's 45 minutes, actually, uh, without traffic. So in, in the States, it's a whole other story. Hulsh says a five-piece band planning a U.S. tour can expect to shell out 10000 bucks for airfare and visa fees, and that's before they play their first note. Hulsh is seeking more Israeli government support for Israeli music export. He says the agency that's been most willing to help out so far is the Ministry of Foreign Affairs, and that's not ideal. Hulsh says introducing Israeli bands to the world can help the country's public diplomacy effort But it should be about the music, he says, not politics. One question for bands from Israel and other countries is this. Do they have to sing in English to make it big internationally? The members of Monte Fiori say no. 
They sing in Italian. We're not trying to hide the fact that we're from the Middle East. And we're not trying to imitate the Italian music like per se. That's singer Itamar Finci and guitar player Asa Raviv. Why'd you guys pick Italian? It just sounds better than English sometimes. And, you know, we can't sing in English because we're Israeli, so you have, we have an accent problem. <laughs> so. For some reason, for an Israeli to sing in Italiano, it's much easier. Can't explain it, but it works. Montefiore has had a hit single in Israel, but it didn't make them rich. They've played a lot of wedding gigs to save up for their first tour abroad. It's in Germany next month. In addition to all the other problems musicians in Israel experience, even Israeli artists who make it often have to deal with something that the rest of the music world never does. We've been demonstrated against a few times in the States and Canada. Again, Shanan Street of Hadag Nahash, the group is known for its left-wing politics and unapologetic criticism of Israeli government policy. And a lot of times we speak to the demonstrators, we tell them what side of the map we lean to, you know, what we believe, and they'll say stuff like, well, that's nice to hear, we agree with you, but we're still going to demonstrate here because, for whatever reason... Street says his band would never be comfortable waving the flag of Israel on stage abroad, but they do feel proud to be international ambassadors of a sort for the Israeli people, and they hope more Israeli bands can join them. For The World, I'm Matthew Bell in Jerusalem. There's no escaping the politics when discussing the focus of our next story. It's about a documentary that dives straight into one of the most contentious topics in the Middle East, Jewish settlements. Reporter Monica Campbell has a story. Posters, T-shirts, bottles and bags support the Jewish Film Festival. Recently, at San Francisco's historic Castro Theater, a short documentary called My Neighborhood had its West Coast premiere. Directed by Brazil's Julia Bacha, it begins with a Palestinian teen, Mohamed El-Kurd. He introduces his family and home in the Palestinian neighborhood of East Jerusalem. I live in Jerusalem in Tirzerrah, neighborhood. This is my father. This is my library. We have lots of books. It's a peaceful introduction. And then Mohammed's life is upended. That's Mohammed's grandmother shouting at Israeli settlers in 2009. They'd won the legal right to evict Mohammed's family and his neighbors from homes they've lived in since 1956, part of an ongoing push by Jewish settlers for more control over Palestinian areas. The film's distinction is its focus on Mohammed, a bewildered 11-year-old living through it all. It's a rare perspective amid Israeli-Palestinian headlines. In San Francisco, the film stirred complex feelings. Louise Jacobs, a nurse, was in the audience. 
I guess I have been more partial to the Israelis that are, are doing the occupying. But after seeing this particular film, it gives me um, a very painful feeling because I know that these families are being evicted from their home with all their possessions, and it hurts me. It's a response that Just Vision, the filmmaking group behind My Neighborhood, hopes to elicit. Nadav Greenberg is the film's associate producer. You hear so often about this conflict, but it's translated into these broad political processes that people can't really think of in tangible terms. And seeing someone kicked out of their home in the middle of the day and then other families moving in in front of their very eyes is something that it's, is very difficult to remain indifferent to. And in East Jerusalem, the films affected Mohammed, too. He's 14 now, wants to become a human rights lawyer, and recently went to the documentary screening at the European Parliament in Brussels. He told me recently that it was a surreal, surprising journey. It's my first time out of, like, Middle East. And also when I went to the European Parliament, like, I thought it's going to be really hard because I always think, I don't know, they are, like, politicians and what we see in news that those mad faces and stuff so I just imagine they will all be like mad. The film does include claims by the Israeli settlers, sentiments held by an increasingly vocal and politically influential minority of Jews. And the Bible says that this area and this country belong to the Jewish people. That all this area uh, will be a Jewish neighborhood. But the film focuses on the Palestinian experience, and that included the shock of seeing Israelis from West Jerusalem also protest in the evictions. <laughs> Mohammed asked himself, these are Jews? I was shocked. I thought they're Jews, and Jews are bad and stuff, but no, I found out like most of the Jews are good. Greenberg, the film's associate producer, who is from Jerusalem, was also there in 2009 and joined other Israelis defending the Palestinians. He says that my neighborhood also highlights Israeli-Palestinian solidarity, especially now. Things like evictions of families in East Jerusalem, things like growing settlements in East Jerusalem, are pushing the city to the brink. And if things explode in Jerusalem, things explode around the region. Since the evictions, Mohammed's family, more than 10 relatives, have lived in a cramped annex. Bizarrely, it's in the back of their former home, where settlers now live. Relations are poisoned. Like any normal talk, never. When people say, how's your new neighbors? They're not neighbors. Just, you know, when a virus comes to the body, they're just like small cancer, and I know someday they will just go away. For now, Mohammed says he's glad that a wider public can see his life and know the story of the Israelis who came to his family's side. For The World, I'm Monica Campbell in San Francisco. We posted the trailer to director Julia Bacha's documentary, and you can see pictures of some of the people in the film. That's all at theworld.org. For today's GeoQuiz, we'd like to introduce you to the Denisovans. They're a cave-dwelling family who lived some 80,000 years ago. Scientists have, for the first time, mapped out the DNA of these human ancestors. They did it using just a fragment of a girl's finger bone that turned up in a cave. The Denisova Cave is in a um, kind of steep valley. So uh, the drive up from uh, Novosibirsk involves driving through the Siberian uh, steppe and then going up into the very large mountain range uh, right in the middle of Asia. So can you name that mountain range in Siberia near the borders of Kazakhstan and Mongolia? We're back with the answer later in the program.
Two weeks ago, Ecuador's President Rafael Correa granted asylum to WikiLeaks founder Julian Assange, who had taken refuge in the country's embassy in London, kicking off a diplomatic standoff that could go on for a long time. Ecuador may have gone out on a limb to save the poster boy for freedom of the press, but inside Ecuador, it's a different scene. A 2011 report from the Committee to Protect Journalists says President Correa's press freedom record is among the very worst in the Americas. And yesterday, it was announced that asylum was granted by the United States for an Ecuadorian journalist, Emilio Palacio. Last year in Ecuador, Palacio was fined millions of dollars and sentenced to jail for an opinion piece he wrote about President Correa. Sandra Grossman is Palacio's U.S.-based attorney, and she joins us from Miami. Uh, can you describe, first of all, the article that got Palacio into trouble in the first place? Absolutely. Um, the article was titled No to the Lies, and it was published in the opinion section of El Universo newspaper. And basically what the article uh, did was condemn President Correa's handling of a police revolt, uh, which took place in Ecuador on September 30th of 2010. Uh, it was it was bloody. It was costly. There were, um, I think, more than eight people killed, more than 270 people wounded. And basically, the, the revolt led to much debate and disagreement in Ecuador about what really happened that day. So mm-hmm. my client addressed uh, this event in his article and criticized the president for his handling of the revolt. So tell us more about these defamation laws that President Correa has been using. Did he fine tune them for his own needs or have they been on the books for some time? You know, uh, the the president, since he's taken power in 2007, uh, we've seen that he's been utilizing these laws exponentially uh, more than any other administration has done uh, in in the Ecuadorian government. And that's part of what the Committee to Protect Journalists and numerous other independent freedom of the press organizations around the world are reporting on and picking up on um, is that these have been... uh, these these types of lawsuits are increasingly being used to silence journalists in that country. Um, and my client's case is just one of many. It was reported that President Correa had thrown out the charges and fines and pardoned Palacio. If that is the case, what does he have to fear still? He has a lot to fear. Um, he uh, President Palacio did pardon the imposition of the sentence against my client and against the owners of El Universo newspaper, but actually the conviction remains and acts as a legal precedent against my client, so that if any other lawsuit is ever instituted against him, and actually there are already others, um, he would be uh, viewed as a recidivist and would be subject actually to even greater civil and criminal penalties. With with Julian Assange still in the Ecuadorian embassy in London, trying, one can assume, to avoid ultimately getting extradited to the U.S., what might the U.S. have gained by granting asylum to Palacio? That's an interesting question. And, you know, I am not, I'm definitely not involved in the Assange case. Um, the decision to grant asylum was made the day after the Assange decision. Um, nevertheless, we have information that there was a recommended approval um, way before the Assange affair even even became an international issue. Um, you know, I see President Correa's actions as very contradictory, considering um, how he treats journalists in his own country. And maybe the United States is using this opportunity uh, to make that point as well. If freedom of the press is so shoddy in Ecuador, maybe it's not the safe haven Julian Assange thinks it is. Do you have any advice for him if he does manage to get out of the embassy in London and onto a plane to to Ecuador? I would advise him not to write anything criticizing the president.
Sandra Grossman, a lawyer specializing in complex immigration and asylum cases. Thank you very much for your time. Thank you. This is PRI, Public Radio International. The world is supported by PBS Learning Media, providing accessible, on-demand educational content to teachers nationwide. Thousands of resources at your fingertips from PBS Learning Media. Information at pbslearningmedia.org. I'm Marco Werman. This is The World. Let's meet the Denisovans. They're part of my family and yours, sort of. Scientists describe them as a group of distant human ancestors who lived in caves some 80,000 years ago. DNA samples were analyzed from the remains of a young girl's tiny finger bone, and that's revealed some deep scientific insights. They're published this week in the journal Science. David Reich is a professor at Harvard Medical School. Help us with our geo-quiz, first of all, Professor Reich. So I visited, as part of this research, uh, the place from which this bone that we studied was excavated, which is Denisova Cave in the Altai Mountains in southern Siberia, quite near the border of Mongolia and Kazakhstan. Okay, Siberia's Altai Mountains is the answer to the geo-quiz today. And to me, it looked surprisingly like the Appalachian Mountains. Uh, we approached there uh, by driving south from Novosibirsk, which is the third largest city in Russia. Uh, you cross the Siberian steppe. Uh, you then approach the foothills of the Altai. And then you climb up uh, through this rocky river valley where this river flows called the Anhui, flowing north into the steppe. Denisova Cave is built into one side of that valley and uh, is a limestone cave. It's quite a beautiful cave. It's a domed ceiling. There's a natural chimney that lets in light as well as as rain. It's uh, an amazing place because it's a place where we know that uh, three different groups of humans lived and maybe even met at one time. It's the only place in the world we know that Denisovans, Neanderthals, and modern humans all lived because we have remains from all of them in this cave. Now, you were deciphering ancient DNA. How hard is that to reconstruct a complete genome from a scrap of an 80,000-year-old finger bone? Yeah, well, that's the miracle of this paper that just came out. This bone was being studied by my colleagues in Germany who led this work. And this is an amazing feat. This is a many tens of thousands of year old sample, probably more than 50,000 year old sample that's been sitting in a cave for this long. Um, it's amazing that any DNA has survived in it at all. Yeah. Ancient DNA studies, um, typically the extraction procedure for DNA only obtains a few percent of the DNA that starts out in the bone. It's a teeny tiny pinky bone, um, like the size of a fingernail, um, that we thought we had exhausted, but now we obtained a very high quality genome sequence of it that's equivalent to the quality of modern humans genome sequences. These early humans, these contemporaries of the Neanderthals, what ultimately happened to them? I mean, what happened to the Denisovans? Well, around 40 or 50,000 years ago, there was an explosion of modern humans out of Africa. Modern human ancestors uh, lived in Africa and evolved in Africa. And then 40 or 50,000 years ago, people expanded and exploded out of Africa. When they exploded out of Africa, they did not come to a landscape that was devoid of humans. There were humans there already. There were Neanderthals in Europe and Western Asia. And it seems there were Denisovans in eastern parts of Eurasia. And the genetic data that we have shows that they met each other, and the Neanderthals and Denisovans population seem to have largely died out, but they left a little trace in us because there was interbreeding between them and the modern humans who were expanding. What does that mean in terms of the relationship between that long-ago deceased girl and her finger and us modern humans? How are we alike? So... The Denisovan uh, girl is from another group of archaic humans related to Neanderthals, but not Neanderthals. 
Uh, they're more closely related to Neanderthals than to us. They had very uh, Neanderthals, we know, had very big brains, just as big as maybe even a little bigger than ours. And they, they could make tools and pretty sophisticated tools. And so these people were, were humans. And when modern humans expanded into Southeast Asia and Australia, somewhere on the way, we know that modern humans met Denisovans and that there was a interbreeding event or many interbreeding events. And people today uh, in the New Guinea and Australia and the Philippines have substantial amounts of genetic material, for example, up to 5% of their, their genes trace their ancestry to interbreeding with these Denisovans. So what big questions about the Denisovans uh, still nag at you, uh, Professor Reich, and where are you taking this research? One of the things that's most exciting about this is that this is the, a case where instead of archaeology driving the DNA, DNA is driving the archaeology. This was an unexpected finding where a bone that was not classified as being from a distinct group is found to be from a distinct group based on its DNA. We the preservation of the bone is so high and so good that we now have a full genome sequence that shows us it's from a distinct group. But we don't know the archaeology of the group that made these things. What kind of tools did they make? What do their bones look like? We don't know. Like, we do know what Neanderthals look like, and we do know what modern humans like look like. They're very well characterized archaeologically. So I think a great puzzle for the archaeologists is to figure out where these Denisovans lived, not just in the cave in Siberia. What, did they, what kind of tools did they make? Uh, what kind of culture did they have? And I think that that's very exciting, for sure. David Reich of Harvard's Medical School telling us about the Denisovans from the Altai Mountains in southern Siberia. Thank you very much. Thank you. A few of our geotexting game players knew where the Denisova Cave is. Clayton in Denver, Ingmar in Evanston, Illinois, and Cedric in Sebring, Florida all came up with the Altai Mountains in Siberia. No ropes or carabiners required to play along. Just text GEOQUIZ, one word, to 69866. And finally, we return to the country where we started today's program, South Africa. As we reported, South Africans are angry and confused by the shootings of those striking miners in Marikana, the anger only made worse today by the murder charges filed against other miners involved in the unrest. Maybe tension will always define the Rainbow Nation. Perhaps that's why South African music continues to be complex and fascinating. Take, for example, the new album by three producers and DJs known as LV and a track called Zulu Computer. Check, check, I'm a Zulu computer. Last name Macintosh, everything's super. iPhone accident, Robocop accent, taxi driver dialect, Wi-Fi direct. I'm a one-eyed pirate, Bobby Brown cordless. Yeah, record this. Flow is so gorgeous, I'm off into more of this. Talk cautious, and I walk cautious. I'm a Zulu computer. Nickname Chuluga. A.K.A. Mfana Future. Girl shake like a hula. East London grime comes to South Africa at half speed. LV takes grime and shakes up the local rhythm of Kwaito in the process. The three core members of LV do the mixing and shaking, but the rapping comes courtesy of a rotating cast of characters. We profiled one of them earlier in the summer, Spoke Matambo, and on the title track to LV's new recording, Sabenza, one of South Africa's most in-demand MCs helms the session. His name, and it's a great name, is Omalum Kulkat. Sabenza means work in Zulu, by the way, so how about a little Sabenza right before the long Labor Day weekend? You can download this on MP3. The band is LV, and if we're to believe all the web-based music speculators, they're set to come out of the left-field music scene soon. So watch out. Their album, Sabenza, will be out next week. 
That'll do it for us today. Our non-grime theme music was composed by Eric Goldberg. We're online with videos by LV and so much more from today's program at theworld.org. From the Nan and Bill Harris Studios at WGBH in Boston, I'm Marco Werman, and I tweet at Marco Werman. Thanks for being with us. Sessa Bend, Sessa Bend, what? Sessa Bend only last in December. Sessa Bend, Sessa Bend, what? Sessa Bend only last in December. Sessa Bend, Sessa Bend, what? Sessa Bend only last in December. The World is a co-production of the BBC World Service, PRI, and WGBH Boston, supported in part by the Annenberg Foundation, by the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, dedicated to the idea that all people deserve the chance to live healthy, productive lives, GatesFoundation.org, by the Henry Luce Foundation for increased understanding of East and Southeast Asia, and by the PRI Program Fund, supporting informed risk-taking in public radio programming. Contributors include Ken and Lucy Lehman, who believe that winning workplaces respect, reward, and invest in their employees. PRI Public Radio International.